What is up? What is going on, everybody? This week, we are talking maybe the greatest Tom Cruise performance in his career. We'll dive into it on the other side of the song. everyone to another episode of the threequel as always i am one of your co-hosts ethan klein and here with me yet again mike duranic brad missing in action uh he he was not with us this week on of course i'm right uh we still cannot find him uh here for this episode of the threequel again hoping that we will have him back next week but until then we will try to hold down the fort uh just the two of us mike well as always we strive to Bring the kind of show in that at a minimum moves you to give us a one-star review. Right. At a minimum. It could be better. Uh, you know, Brad, I hope that you're doing well drinking your strong bows in Pappy's Corner. Uh, and maybe next week, uh, the three of us will be back together. We will see if we can uh, save him from the grasp of Pappy Drew. But until then, uh, we will continue to do our job here on the three cool. And this week, it is talking about 2004's collateral here to kick off the month of August. Uh, we were looking through our options uh, for the month of August. And this one uh, was pretty clear when you and I were talking last week that this was just kind of the, the going to be the group choice uh, because of how much you and I uh, both appreciate this film. Yeah, it was uh, it was one that I definitely had very fond memories of and really enjoyed on the rewatch. So I'm excited to dive into it with you tonight, Ethan. Uh, I am as well. So let's get right into it. We'll start it uh, as we always do, Mike. I will just simply ask you, uh, what was your first experience with Collateral? Was it back in August of 2004? Uh, was it sometime between then and now? Where were you? What was that experience like? And what did you bring into uh, this rewatch here for this episode. So this is a movie that I saw in the theater with my brother uh, and kind of pinning it in terms of its release date there, early August, 2004. Uh, it probably would have been me and him getting together for like a, a last hurrah going away before I went to college. And so distinctly remember watching it with him. Uh, it, the first time that I watched it, I was taken um, certainly by Cruz's performance, um, you know, you'd kind of hinted at, and I'm sure we're going to dive into where this ranks on that list, but pretty high for me, uh, really loved Jamie Foxx's performance. Um, and it was one that I haven't seen a ton, but it sticks in my mind really well. And so on the rewatch, uh, yep, it was just right where I expected it to be. How about you? Yeah, so for me, this was the first time I ever saw this. I, I could, I would not be able to pin down the date. It was a TV watch, um, but I do know that it was one that the first time I saw it, and maybe it was because it was on TV with commercials and things like that and distractions. I know I wasn't like I wasn't completely attached to it, and then uh, probably around the time I was fifteen, sixteen, I was at the Fye store at the mall. You know, having one of their deals going on where you can get, you know, God knows how many movies for a cheap price. And I know for a fact I needed one more movie to hit their deal. And I just saw it like, yeah, I remember seeing this like Tom Cruise, whatever, grabbed it. And when I finally got around to watching it on DVD and really sitting and focusing in on it, 
I was blown away. It was not the same movie that I had seen however many years prior um, just on normal cable television. It's totally locked in. And just over the years, the opportunities I've had to rewatch it, I have loved it. And for me, it's one of these movies that it's so it's always been so interesting to sell. It's a movie that not many people have seen. Um, I'll, I'll check the box office. I know like it, it's just not that talked about in terms of if people are like, yeah, I'm a Tom Cruise fan. No, I've never heard of Collateral. Like that seems to come across so often. And I think it is because of, you know, the distinct turn that Tom Cruise has in this movie that it's just not one of those ones that, that people come back to. And yet $65 million budget made 220. So it did its job, made money for the company. Um, but again, not this like worldwide hit uh, per se that just like blew up all over the place. So I love showing this one to people just because it is so different. Um, the performances are great. And uh, yeah, so since we've already touched on it a couple times, my thesis statement that I bring every week, something hyperbolic uh, in a way, uh, just kind of get the conversation rolling and it'll kind of bring us into this conversation about his performance. Uh, the thesis statement I have for this, this is the single most snubbed performance that we have done on this show. I, I think, you know, I looked back through, I was, I was almost going to say film entirely, mm. uh, but the fact that the dark Knight, you know, didn't even get nominated for best picture. That one is clearly the bigger uh, injustice, but in terms of one singular performance, not getting the respect that it is, that it is due Tom Cruise, not getting nominated for this is the biggest crime that we have encountered here on the threequel. So I'm looking at our list of the movies that we, that we have watched and yeah, as I kind of scroll through this again, you make a really, a really compelling point. Um, I think this is a better performance of his than Minority Report. And I think Minority Report got a little more play uh, in, in general, uh, continuing to go down even a little bit deeper. Um, you know, movies like Mad Max got uh, quite a bit more uh, acknowledgement, I feel like, at the time. Um yeah, I can't. I can't point to any one thing where I, I look at uh, this list of twenty six films prior to this that we've looked at and can point to something that was more snubbed than this. It is always amazing to me. Cruz even today does not get nearly the credit for this role, even from people who know this movie. It seems like they're very quick to say Jamie Fox does an exceptional job, which is very true. Yes, and then they'll say like I, I even as I was kind of you know. Reading uh, some of the reviews and things like that through, um, you know, the years, it was an awful lot of well, Fox overcame Cruz's performance, and, and I just don't see it that way. I think Tom Cruise uh, came into this role to deliver a, a specific type of performance, and I think he delivered it um, going away. Yeah, and so this is the year Jamie Fox gets the double nomination this year. Um, he gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this film, which is very interesting. I mean, it, if you're going to split hairs one way or the other, I, they are co-leads. And I mean, the exact definition to me of co-leads. But if you're going to lean one way or the other, Jamie Foxx is much more of the lead than uh, Tom Cruise is. There's not a scene in this film that mm -hmm. Jamie Foxx isn't in. 
but he gets the supporting actor nod for this, and then he wins uh, for Ray, his his lone uh, Academy Award win. And I think at the end of the day, what that comes down to is the Academy. I, I don't think they're ever going to give someone a double nomination in the same category in terms of acting. It's happened with director before. Um, so I think that's probably where that split comes in at. Uh, but the fact that he gets nominated, I mean, I think, yeah, Tom Cruise deserved to at least also have a Best Supporting Actor nomination or should have even been given uh, the lead actor nod there. But we, we've talked about Tom Cruise before, um, obviously with Minority Report, so we don't need to, you know, pick through his entire filmography again. But I am curious, is this your his number one performance for you then? Uh, just simply looking at the performance. Yeah, so I just pulled back up my my Tom Cruise Rushmore, and as you pointed out, it was number one for me and my my Tom Cruise Rushmore. And I would say by extension, it is my favorite performance of his. Um, you know, I had this one at number one in Minority Report number two, uh, and those two are a strong two ahead of anything else for me. Um, but it was fairly easy when I did that list for me to um go with collateral number one and having rewatched those two recently collateral will come in ahead of minority report for me when i put it on my kind of running rankings of all these movies yeah i think that for me uh, top gun will just always have such a special place in my heart and that was my number one we did the mount rushmore with collateral being my number two upon this rewatch again here because it had been a few years since i've seen it I mean, I, I cannot deny that if we made that list now, Collateral would actually jump uh, Top Gun. Now, if I could only ever rewatch one, you know, maybe, you know, Top Gun just for the the fun, maybe what I pick. But just in terms of which movie is better, this is taking it. And his performance for me, the Minority Report performance is great. There was just so much in this that went over it. And I think because even in minority report, there are still those Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise moments. He avoids the temptation to do that throughout this movie. You know, there isn't the big bombastic kind of over the top acting moment. A lot of it is just so quiet throughout mm -hmm. the entire thing. And I think maybe that's why it gets knocked unfairly. Um, but to me, it takes a lot more talent to be such a driving force in a film without going over the top than it does to, you know, be loud and be crazy and then be remembered. Yeah, it, it is a contained performance for him that is um, it's very potent. It's very focused. He knows what he wants to be doing at all times. He's in control. Uh pretty much throughout the entire movie, which is part of, I think, what makes the character work, right, is this is a guy who it doesn't matter the circumstances he's in. He is wholly in control, quite literally right up until the very last scene in the last moment when he's like when he's when he's defeated. But even then he's in control. Yeah, all the way down that final scene the his death scene is a masterclass in filmmaking for me. The the way it's shot and I don't know, maybe you maybe someone would have an issue with the fact that Jamie Foxx was able to shoot him and he didn't get shot. But I think to me, that was kind of the point was that it's just kind of sometimes just the luck of him getting in his cap. Right. That was just kind of the luck of that moment. And finally, Tom Cruise 
Tom Cruise's luck had run out, but just the way that shot with his coats kind of over it from the angle and he's going to reload, which we've seen him done like with such proficiency proficiency. He's so surgical with how he does it, but he drops the magazine. Right. And then he kind of moves and you see a little bit of the blood mm-hmm. and he takes that second to sit down. And it's just, like you said, he's kind of, he's still controlling how it's going, but obviously it's, it, it's over for him in that moment. So just a fantastic performance from Cruz, uh, as we both said. Uh, the other performances that stand out, obviously Jamie Foxx did get nominated for this. And as you said, and, and I agree with you, fantastic. For me, Jamie Foxx is not someone that I've ever been, oh, Jamie Foxx has a new movie, I have to rush and go see it. But when he is on, mm-hmm. he is v- very, very talented. He's one of the best. And this is one of the times in his career that he absolutely was on. Yeah, the, and what a great year for him. I mean, this and Ray in the same year, um, you know, plenty of actors could go an entire career and not have two movies where they played the characters as well as he did across those two. Um, you know, I, I like Jamie Foxx. I think that he is a quite a talented uh, actor. I agree with you as you kind of look through his filmography. Nah, there's some good parts, some not as good parts. Uh, I enjoyed his uh, his bit part in Horrible Bosses that yep. made me made me laugh, and I thought that he did a great job with the voice uh, work in Soul, which came out last year. Yep, uh, I thought again just showing his abilities. Not not just everybody can do a cartoon and do it well, uh, and I thought that he delivered on that. So uh, definitely a very um, very talented actor, and and one that I, again I think we've said this a number of times recently and. Probably it's a good thing. He has a bright future ahead of him as he continues to to age. And I think that he has the ability to, to put out some more uh, iconic performances. Yeah, uh, it seems to be like, so obviously I love this. Django is probably in my top 25 movies for me. Like, I, I, I mean, I've never actually sat down and extended my top 10 to top 25, but I bet it's close because I, I love that movie so much. And obviously he's a huge part of that. And like, and looking ahead at where his career is going to go. Um, it's been known for a while that he's going to play Mike Tyson. And I think an HBO series. Hmm. Um, and if you've ever heard him do his impression of Tyson, you close your eyes and you don't know which one of them is in the room. So he's fully embracing that. Um, They're going to make a new spawn movie. So he's already been a little bit in the superhero realm in in a movie that wasn't too appreciated with the amazing spider-man 2 but he's going to get to lead a superhero film so he's dipping his toe into that water and uh mel gibson his next project is remaking a western called the wild bunch which is known to be one of the most you know violent uh films ever for its time uh and so i mean mel gibson getting hold of that kind of property and a film that's going to be led by a guy like Jamie Foxx. We've seen what you can do in the Western realm with Django. So like you said, very excited to see what's coming from him, regardless of if I've been kind of up and down on the rest of his career. Yeah. Uh, so the other two performances that, obvi- I mean, th- there there are plenty of characters that pop up through this, but the other two main leads uh, would be Jada Pinkett Smith and Mark Ruffalo. I think the biggest takeaway I have from that is, I was surprised when I I looked up Jada Pinkett Smith and it's just she's been in so little for how famous she is. Now, of course, a, a part of that is for how long her and Will Smith have been together. Uh, but, you know, it, but it's just, you know, she's in something like this, which is just so fantastic. 
and whether or not people know that much about it it's a it's a very well reviewed very well accepted film she's in the matrix movies right like you would think that she would be in so much more that her catalog would be so much bigger but she's just kind of pick and chose what she's going to be in when she's going to be in it i think you know there was a time there 90s early 2000s she could have probably been in whatever she wanted but she kept it where it was and she was happy with that yeah it, i agree with you as i kind of scroll through she's been in enough things that you're like well she's definitely uh got the chops and you've seen it but uh it does seem to be very selective in what she chooses to be in and um again as you look at uh just since 2005 even really um yeah, a movie more or less a year, a couple of years in there with no movies. Very, uh, very specific. She is coming back in the Matrix. Uh, it looks like for the Matrix Four this year, uh, and so you've got uh, you've got that coming up. Yeah, and then uh, Mark Ruffalo. I don't know. I don't think we've had a Mark Ruffalo performance yet on the threequel. Um, does good in this. I think the only thing is. I never want to see him with that style again. <laughs> I'm not sure who came up with his look for this movie. I don't know if LA detectives tend to look like that uh, nowadays, but um, the, the earrings were not Mark Ruffalo's best friend. Well, the funny thing was it took me a minute. I had forgotten it was Mark Ruffalo in this movie. And so after his first scene, when he's on the, the side of the first murder, right? And then he came back and it took me a second to, I finally recognized Mark Ruffalo. Um, for whatever reason, <laughs> I thought it was the actor uh, with just with the slicked back hair and everything. I thought it was the actor who plays the kid brother of Nicholas Cage and gone in 60 seconds. Okay. Giovanni or BC. There you go. And yeah. so that's, that's, uh, that's where my mind immediately went. Yeah. Not, they do not look dissimilar uh, with, with, with the hairstyle you're completely correct so the the other thing that really stood out to me the other performance was the quick i guess if you want to call it cameo from javier bardem i love seeing him in things and i completely forgot that he was in this and he looks so incredibly different than he ever has but it's just one of those things you just have to appreciate talent when you see it how his scene he does such good work in that scene across from jamie fox who completely has to change his character in an instant Mm -hmm. um, it's just great when you know you can get a guy like Javier Bardem to come in for such a small moment that makes such an impact on the film. So when I watched that scene, what I was taken by, I remembered that scene as being the the switch flipping with Jamie Foxx's character and how impressive that acting was. Yeah. But to your point about uh, you know Javier Bardem. It takes the I, I firmly believe you can't make a switch the way that Fox did and make it believable absent being across another phenomenal actor. And Bardem's presence makes what Fox does feel uh, incredibly important, obviously, but also all the more believable. And they play off of each other perfectly. It is a it is a phenomenal scene. Yeah, Bardem is just. He's a talent. I, I don't know if I can say underrated because obviously he's been given the accolades, but just, you know, he's a name that if you just walk down the street, people aren't going to pick up on, I think. And it's a crime because the dude, I mean, he's an Academy Award winner. Obviously, the performance he gives in No Country for Old Men is one of the greatest performances of all time. And I mean, 
I, I know that for whatever reason, Skyfall has gotten like kind of mixed reviews from the fan community. It's my second favorite James Bond movie. And I think without a doubt, he's the greatest Bond villain of all time. And those scenes just one-on-one with him and Daniel Craig. I mean, the dude is just a master class actor and it's awesome that we just get to see him for like five minutes in this movie too. I thought that when you were talking about a bit part, you might've been referencing Jason uh, Statham as the, as the airport man, but yeah, I guess I'm that's glad the you... absolute definition of a bit part. <laughs> there you go. I'm glad you went with uh Bardem as, as the other one you wanted to highlight. Yeah. So let's move on from uh, what we saw on screen to behind the camera, Michael Mann. Um, I, I'm curious, what, what is your uh, opinion of Michael Mann uh, overall? Would you have said before this that you are on a fan of him? Have you looked into it? Like watching this movie, kind of where are you at with him? So as I was watching this movie, I did do a little bit of a dive into Michael Mann because I had a hunch this might be a question you were going to ask. Uh, and for once, I wanted to be able to say, do I think like overrated, underrated, properly rated? Um, so first of all, unless again, Wikipedia is failing me, not an extensive filmography that he has directed. He is he's pretty selective. looks like he did three movies in the 80s, three in the 90s, four in the uh, first decade of the 2000s, and then just the one since then. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so here's where I came down. Some pretty good movies. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I happen to be a, a fairly big fan of Last of the Mohicans for for what it was. Yep. Uh, Heat, obviously. And I think The Insider and Ali were both good. And then you know, Collateral. We we are talking about. Um, I think that he is actually the epitome of somebody who, at this point, has become properly rated. I think at some points in his career, he was probably overrated. I don't know that he is uh, a the, the top uh, of the top in terms of directors. Um, but I think at this point, when you look at it, he has more hits than misses. His movies are by and large solid. He delivers a, a certain sort of way. And I think properly rated at this point is where I go with Michael Mann. Yeah. It's so interesting with, so I mean, he, no spoilers here. I think that's a December released film. When we get to December, we'll be doing that in December. Um, love that movie uh, through and through. So obviously I'm such an over the top fan of two of his films. I, I've kind of been in the middle. What I really, in, in the latter part of his career, you said that he kind of did some, just kind of chose uh, very specifically what he wanted to do. And obviously we haven't seen him release a film since 2015. He got pretty lit up for his last three movies, just in terms of fan reception. Black hat is not good. I understand that. But for me, like Miami Vice and Public Enemies, I, I don't know if people were maybe expecting, like, I, I don't think people were expecting Oscar contending for Miami Vice. They probably definitely were with Public Enemies. But I think if you just watch those for entertaining action films, they are sweet. And with Miami Vice, people said that, like, it didn't do justice to the original show. Well, the problem with that is that what Michael Mann got his start in was he created the Miami Vice TV show. So whatever vision he wanted to do for the film, I'm okay with. It's not someone just completely changed. Like, it was his. It was his baby, and he decided to make a movie about it. And I love Colin Farrell. Jamie Foxx is in it. I think that movie's freaking sweet. And then Public Enemies, Johnny Depp is John Dillinger. Like, if you just watch it for just it to be cool, it achieves that. Maybe it didn't achieve, like, the upper echelon of what people expected. But for me, yeah. just being entertained, it hits that. And I've always consistently been entertained by his films with 
collateral and heat kind of taking that next step up to me of being like all time greats. Well, and I think that that actually, you just crystallized what I was trying to say there because coming from, you know, 92 to 2004, he had with last of the Mohicans with, with heat uh, insider, Ali and collateral five movies that by and large got, good reception. I mean, out of all of them, Heat is probably his biggest one, but that was one that didn't get any Academy Award nominations where each of the other four were nominated at least for a category. And so I think coming out of Collateral in 2004, he was probably considered to be on that upper echelon of directors. And that made it so that when he rolled out Miami Vice and Public uh, Enemies, there was this idea that these were going to be, you know, top end movies uh, when in reality they weren't, and I think that those damaged him. And then, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm not familiar with Black Hat. You said it's not good. Uh, I trust your judgment on it. But I think that over the course of the last three movies of his career, he has gone from being overrated to properly rated. He delivers yep. more times than not. They're solid. They're entertaining. Uh, they can even have performances in them that can be um, awards worthy. But he's not, you know, a, a director uh, like a, a Scorsese or someone of that caliber. Yeah, sounds like we pretty much completely agree on Michael Mann's career. So let's shift gears a little bit here, Mike. Let's play a game. Uh, let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. And uh, again, I did I did not check this week. Last week I looked beforehand, so I do not know. Um, where this one is sitting on the scale so uh i'll let you you decide who's going to go first and, and we'll see what happens here who can get closer to the rotten tomato score well i think two weeks ago when you didn't look uh you went first right i believe so so i'll turn about fair play and i'll let you have an opportunity to snipe me this time <clears throat> um I feel like this was fairly well received at the time. As you pointed out, it definitely made its money back for against budget. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with an 86 is where I'm at. Okay. Well, I, I th- I'm going to go below you then, because I feel like if this thing got in to close to 90, it's because it's just, it's, something's just not adding up for me why it got nominated for Jamie Foxx's performance but then didn't get anything else. Got a film editing nomination. Um, but so I'm, I'm going to go 85 then p- playing the game. Uh, and I should have had this pulled up, but this is why there's editing. <laughs> or you leave it in and it lets them know that True. You, you truly didn't have it cued. So you said 86 and I said 85? Yep. You hit it right on the head, Mike. 86. All uh, right. The Rotten Tomatoes score. And it's an 84 uh, with the fan score. So pretty in line with one another there. So, I, I mean, I think a decent score. I mean, for me, this is a four out of five, four and a half, maybe even out of five film. Uh, but I, I just have so much love for it. So, um yeah, I'd probably say this is probably a four and a half out of five for me. I, I really do love this film. Like it is, it is almost, I mean, we say there's no such thing as a perfect film. This thing's almost flawless for me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I had to, to nitpick with this, what I would say is that the entirety of the club scene where they're just shooting each other and they're moving through, I think that that scene could have been a little tighter and that's probably where they could have cut. But as I was rewatching this, that was quite literally my only real critique of the movie was that 
that scene went a little longer than it needed to and probably could have been cut and made a little bit tighter. Otherwise, I agree with you, pretty much flawless. Yeah, I mean, you just, you have to have such a high level of skill to make a movie like this where, what, 80% of it is inside of a vehicle with two people. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little hint and a wink and a nod, we will be doing another film that is somewhat similar to that here in a couple of weeks on the threequel. Uh, but with this, there are the action scenes to, to kind of keep things moving, but it's just such quality filmmaking to keep you engaged for two hours, uh, which is one of the shorter films of Michael Mann's career, but to keep you that engaged with these two guys. And yeah, I, I would agree that um, there's just not a lot of places to really attack this movie at. Um, uh, unless you think that uh, Pete Berg is not the greatest actor in the world and should stay behind the camera, but he's, <laughs> yeah, but he's a, a small, a small enough part that it didn't really impact. Although I did chuckle and, and I do think he's better behind the camera than he is uh, in, yeah. in front of it. Yeah. And I think that he's realized that because he has stopped cameoing in his own films. Um, let's keep it rolling here. Favorite line, favorite scene, uh mike what is your favorite scene from so my favorite scene in this movie is one that we haven't thus far talked about uh and it is the scene where they are in the jazz club um and they are talking to i want to get the name right uh daniel is the name of the the character uh and they sit down they want to buy daniel a drink and you know, the entire time Jamie Foxx's character is is thinking like, oh, you know, this is a reprieve from this night of horrors, right? That we're taking a break. Um, and so they're sitting there talking to Daniel and having a wonderful conversation. And through that conversation, just all of a sudden at the end, Vincent kind of drops it. Daniel realizes why he's there. And then watching the look of horror just wash over Jamie Foxx's face as he realizes that Daniel is not just the owner of the, the jazz club. He's there uh, and he's, he's going to get killed. Um, and so just the, the scene there, the acting in between, um, you know, Daniel's uh, played by, um, let's see here, uh, Barry, Barry Henley, it looks like. Um, the, the acting there uh, and then playing that off of Cruz and, and off of Jamie Foxx. Um, yeah, it, it ultimately ends up being my favorite scene just because of watching the three of them act off of each other. Yeah, that that was going to be my pick for favorite scene as well. Just how it the sense of dread you feel and then kind of this like, I don't know, I feel like I mean, probably not because he is a con he he takes so much pride in how good he is at his job. But the way Tom Cruise plays it, it almost feels like if his answer to that question would have been he spent a year in school and then dropped out and then found this good. Like if he would have given the exact answer, there is a part of you that feels like Cruz would have let him walk mm-hmm. right? because he plays it so well. Then again, logic play it out. Really? He never would, but the way he expresses this character, you start to feel like there's a chance there's like, we're watching the scene from Jamie because Jamie Foxx like tries to help him, right? Like he went to school, he went to school. I know he went to school. That has to be what it is. Like he's just trying to get through this, to just save one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's just, this really great uh, on all parts. And like, there's a line in it that he said, like, uh, just when I thought, just when I was about to think you were cool. And he's like, I am cool, but I have a job to do. And like, that, that's when I thought like, 
this is such a cool character, even though there's no redeemable qualities about him at all. Yeah. There's like, there's like one moment in this movie where he does something redeemable and it's in the club when he saves Jamie Foxx, which is like this one moment where he kind of, I don't know if he slips up because if he was really just completely devoted to completing the task and, and never being caught, like that's a moment where, I mean, at some point you're going to have to kill Jamie Foxx anyway. Why not just let him die? Mm-hmm. But but he does. And then he gives the little wink too. like he plays this so cool by just being a guy in a gray suit that is just mm-hmm. so professional with his job. And it comes across there, too, I guess. So other than that scene, my pick would then have to be a scene that we talked about. And it is um, surprisingly enough, a scene that Tom Cruise has nothing to do with. But it's the scene with Javier Bardem and Jamie Foxx just because of the turn. And he and he starts to repeat some of the things that Tom Cruise has said about, you know, shit happens. You know, we got it. We adapt. We move forward. And he's just he's just trying. You can see the gears kind of working in his head of what did he say before? How did he say this? How, how would he say this? How, how can I be cool about this? Like, okay, I'm going to take my glasses off and, you know, in six years, have I ever failed? Just kind of watching him work through that. Uh, it's, it's a treat for me being a fan of, of filmmaking. So that's our favorite scene there. Uh, Mike, what would your favorite line be then? Uh, my favorite line comes from very well, fairly early in the movie. Uh, it's just because of the way that both Fox and Cruz deliver their lines. And it's it's very simply Fox looks at Cruz and says, you killed him. And Cruz says, no, I shot him. The bullets in the fall killed him. And it just tells you everything you need to know about their characters and where they're at right now. Jamie Fox is completely, uh, you know, apoplectic that, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you did this. I'm putting the pieces together. Why would you have done this? Right. And Cruz is just all business. No, I didn't. The bullets in the fall killed him, but, you know, and it it just plays, it sets up the rest of the relationship throughout the movie in in a way that just really struck me on this rewatch. So that's my line. Yeah, that's a great one. I think for me, um, there's a moment, there's kind of a, it's a conversation that the two of them are having. And there's just, as they're having this conversation, it's just hard to disagree. Obviously Vincent's a bad person and he's wrong, but it's kind of going back and forth. And he said, you know, there's 6 billion people on the planet. You're getting bent out of shape because of one fat guy. You're like, who is he? It's like, and he, the thing, like, have you heard of Rwanda? Tens of thousands of people before sundown. Nobody's killed that many since Nagasaga and Hiroshima. Did you bat an eye? He's like, I don't know any Rwandans. So you don't go, you don't know the guy in the trunk either. And, Again, not that I'm saying that that guy that he kills is a worthless life. It's just kind of like you're saying with your line, just the matter of factness of Vincent does not look at this as murder. He's hired to do a job. And just the way that they wrote this character to explain his reasoning of millions and millions and millions of people die every day and nobody even notices it. And it's right after this that he tells the story about the guy on the train that died and no one noted, I guess it was a little bit before this, but just the way he looks at life and death is just different. And when he says it so calmly against mm-hmm. how chaotic Jamie Foxx, like what argument does Jamie Foxx have then in that moment? Because he doesn't, he doesn't know the guy in the trunk. He doesn't, you know, he's not a peace corps worker. He, he's just here himself kind of living his life and not paying attention to the world around him. So that, that was my favorite line just because of, how much character work it showed for both of them 
that it would set up for the rest of the movie. So, um, yeah, that, that was our favorite scene, favorite line. So let's go in. That just leaves us with one thing. And that is, uh, the category that this movie falls into. We have the case of beer, which is, you know, a case to get through the movie. Some things are off the rails. Maybe it's unintentionally funny in some ways. It could still be entertaining, but kind of leans a little more in the ridiculous. You have the mixed drink, something in the middle. It's a little bit of both. And then you have the stiff drink. It's very serious. No unintentional comedy whatsoever. Great performances through and through. And this is, I mean, again, uh, without a doubt, it is in one category. And I think you'll agree with me, Mike. It is the stiff drink category. Yeah, I, I uh, definitely agree, especially, again, as you um, when you remind me of these categories and you describe them that way, it is. It's it's one that you're just sitting there kind of sipping uh, along and uh, enjoying the movie for what it is. Um, it is it, it has moments that are funny, but they are not unintentionally funny. Yeah. Um, they, they play for the specific humor. And uh, at the same time, the uh, gravity of the topic is never lost on you throughout the entire thing. So um, stiff drink it is. Yeah, it takes itself seriously in all of the right ways um, while not being, <clears throat> like I said, I have seen you know, I've read about this movie when people have issues with the fact that there's no way that Max would have ever survived this situation because of how much of a professional they make Vincent. But when I watch this movie, it I don't roll my eyes by the end of it and think this should not have happened, right? Like, I believe the story they tell and the fact that for whatever reason, Vincent, maybe it is a control thing. You know, he could have killed Max at any point, but he wants this to be on his terms. Mm-hmm. And he's put in a kind of a corner where he can't kill him in certain moments. And then that finally just comes back to bite him. His own hubris kind of comes back to get him. And, and I believe that all the way through right up to the very end. And that's such a great, we didn't really talk about it, but just the tension that they build with them running from him on the train and popping his head in and out of the train and waiting for them to get on and off like that. That's really, really well done to get all the way through that final fight. And I buy it. I believe it. It works for me. Yeah. You know, I, I think also you could add in another thing, which is that he's there to do a job. He's a professional and Max was a means to the end. And then Max for much of the movie didn't cross over to being a hindrance to the job. And so he was still a, a tool to get the job done. And why would he have have, have uh, killed him when he was still helping him to get the job done? Now, as you pointed out earlier, uh, I think in the club scene, that would have been the moment where everything comes crashing down. He has the information he needs on the last two. Why not just, you know, be done with Max? That would be where you would have that that potential critique would be from that moment on. But uh, for the majority of the movie, I think that you can make a compelling argument that it, it, in his mind, it is in his business's best interest to keep him alive. Did you catch the one moment in this movie of Tom Cruise doing his own stunt and probably potentially injuring himself really bad, but it made it in the movie? Uh, was it when he came through the window and then tripped over yeah. the chair? Oh, yeah. That looks not fun. Yeah. Like, he, that's a hard fall. And that, if you know anything about Tom Cruise, that 100%, I promise you, was not scripted. And he told him to leave it in there. My guess would be that he was supposed to throw that, run through it, keep going. And for whatever reason, I mean, just slip. But I mean, he hits hard. hard. And I I mean, but like we said before, you know, there's in Mission Impossible, uh, 
fallout. I mean, he's, if you watch the movie, you can see him snap his ankle. It's in the movie. That guy, I don't think he's going to be happy unless he dies on a film set. I really don't like, well, I just listened to it. You know, I mentioned to you off the air an interview uh, with Matt Damon and Matt Damon was talking about Tom Cruise and he said he was sitting, having a meal with Tom Cruise talking about, um, and I, I'm not a Mission Impossible fan like you are, but evidently there's a, a scene, a stunt in which he's running outside of a building uh, at like 1,500 feet up or something like that. I, I don't know, something along those lines, right? But um, but he had had this scene that he had been like in his mind, he had wanted to do this in a movie for like 15 years or something. So he finally gets it into the movie and he goes to the stunt guy and explains it to him. And the stunt guy says, uh, no, that's too dangerous. There's no way I'll sign off on that. And so Matt Damon says, and so Tom Cruise said, well, so I fired the stunt guy and got a new one. Yep. And he's like, wait, so the guy whose job it is to tell you what's safe or not, when he tells you it's not safe, you just go get somebody else. But, you know, I mean, here he is in his, in his fifties and he's still doing his own stunts. And, um, you know, Damon said, and, and I thought this was a really good point. You can probably make the argument at this point that Tom Cruise is the best stunt man in Hollywood. It, it would be hard to say no to that. Uh, because I mean, at this point in a movie, if there's a fist fight, people use body doubles, right? And this guy is learning how to fly helicopters so that he can get a 10 second shot of him taking a helicopter across a freeway, mm-hmm. which, you know, learning to fly a helicopter and then doing it. I mean, that is a danger, like, you know, obvi- like there is a lot of risk involved in that. And that is one of the least risky things that this man does just to film a movie. So it'll be interesting to see how far he goes with that. Obviously we've talked about it with this. Um, I'm very curious to see kind of, I mean, he's still got more mission impossible movies lined up whenever those kind of come to an end. Will he chase after an Oscar win? He seems like a competitive enough guy to me that he'll want that. He's been nominated three times. Hasn't won. We know he has obviously has all the talent in the world. And it would be interesting to see, like, once he gets into his 60s, if he gets that right script and he really goes for it. I, I, I'd be very curious to see how that plays out. Or it could just be the career achievement Oscar when he is uh, in Mission Impossible 14 at the age of 82. It could be that. Still doing his own stunts. <laughs> oh, gosh, that. He's, yeah, that, that would be quite the stunt. That You want to give it to him, then just call it a day. Um, but yeah, that was our conversation about Collateral. We hope you all enjoyed that. Um, if you haven't seen Collateral, it's kind of weird that you listen to this entire podcast, but you should go watch it. Um, and if you have seen it, uh, go rewatch it because it is a very, very great film. Next week on the threequel, I think we're going to go with Signs. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan, of course, back. Uh, in the fold back on your screens. You've probably been seeing plenty of previews for his newest film, Old. I just saw that a few days ago, so I'm sure we can even have a little conversation about that on next week's episode. But we'll be dialing back the clocks uh, quite a bit. Um, We're coming up on, I mean, this movie I think is almost 20 years old, Signs. Uh, So we're going to be going way back. Uh, Yeah, Mike and I both just felt a lot older just when I said that out loud. So join us for that next week on the threequel and tune in will brad be back we will see did we save him from pappy drew's corner uh we'll find out and you'll find out all at the same time next week uh thank you again for supporting the show and other than that guys for mike i'm ethan we'll see you next time